Before beginning with verse 147 of Surah Al-Baqarah, just a quick answer to a question that was raised yesterday about the uh, Jewish Qibla and which direction that the Jewish people and the people of the book face when they are praying. The Qibla for the Jewish people is referred to with the word Mizrah and it faces towards Jerusalem. It's something that is taught in the Talmud and also it finds mention in the Old Testament, particularly where Hazrat Sulaiman refers to the people facing towards Jerusalem when they observe their prayers. There's one point of detail that makes it different from the Qibla that we as Muslims observe, and that is that we as Muslims observe the direction of the Qibla in whatever prayer we observe, congregational prayer or individual prayer whether it's an obligatory, uh, obligatory congregational prayer or even voluntary obligatory prayers. For every formal prayer that we observe, we always face towards the Qibla. The Qibla is something that is universal for us as Muslims. But for the Jewish people, it is not so much so. Only for their individual prayers, they are taught to face towards their Qibla, but not necessarily for their congregational prayers. So this point of Qibla is something that is deeply enshrined and ingrained within us as Muslims and within the religion of Islam. And it is a point of significance. Now going back to why it is that this has so much emphasis in Islam, why it is something that is emphasized in these verses. Again, this, was, this commandment was something that carried great significance for the Muslims. Hazrat Khalifat al-Masih explains that there are some things that a religion establishes which even when people fail to follow the teachings of that religion properly, they maintain as being something that is important to them. He gave the example that Hindus, those who follow Hinduism, they may be disobeying the commandments of Hinduism in many different ways, and stealing and drinking and all sorts of things. But the cultural aspect of their religion of staying within their caste is so well established that even the worst Hindu would consider it many times unimaginable to marry outside of his caste. That's how it was during the time of Hazrat Khalifa Abul, to, to what extent it exists now with atheism in general, um, you know, the world becoming a global village. Many of these points are starting to fade away even within the followers of their religions. Another point as we mentioned is within Muslims. The Muslim sometimes will drink alcohol, commit theft, do all sorts of things, but he'll never eat pork. In fact, some people might even say, consider that a marker that if they see someone eating pork, they will assume that he is not a Muslim. They'll see someone cheating, taking interest, committing all sorts of sins, and they'll still be open to the fact that this person may be a Muslim. But when they see him eating pork, they'll say, maybe this person is not a Muslim, because that has such a taboo in society. So even when people do all sorts of wrong things, some things are maintained as taboos, as cultural aspects of a religion, or things that have a sort of um, you know, importance to them. So similar thing is to, existed among the Arabs about their Qibla. The Arabs did all types of sins. They were lost in the worst of sins in every type of way. But they respected the Kaaba. They had a great deal of reverence for it. Despite the fact that they would consider it permissible to fight and kill and rob other tribes, but near the Kaaba, they considered it to be forbidden because it was a holy sanctuary. So at that time for the Holy Prophet ﷺ to command the Muslims to pray towards Baytul Maqdas initially, and then later it was moved towards the Kaaba, we can understand how great of a significance it has. These verses and these commandments, they carried significance before Islam among the Arabs because of the importance of the Kaaba that Hazrat Ibrahim had established. And after Islam, it carries a great importance as well. The Qibla in Islam <clears throat> is something that carries more significance than the Qibla that is found in any other religion 
And that's something that's shown from the way that the Jews follow their Qibla in the fact that they have it as a concept, but it is not something as central and as important to them. One other point that comes from this is a point that's coming up in current affairs. Now, there's a great controversy right now about how the United States is considering moving its embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. And this is something that is a point of great controversy for the um, Palestinians because they consider this to be a political move on something that is of religious significance. But here we should also remember as Muslims that Jerusalem is not that significant to us, at least not as much as it is to the Bani Israel. To the children of Israel, Jerusalem is of great significance because having that promised land is something that was a part of the fulfillment of their covenant. It is a sign that they stand in favor with God Almighty. That's also one of the reasons why Jerusalem was lost at the time of Hazrat Umar That when the Holy Prophet came, then under his Khilafat, the symbol of that covenant ending for the Jews also manifested itself with their loss of the promised land that was a symbol of their covenant. When Hazrat Umar it came under his reign and under the reign of the Muslims. So this carries a great symbolism that is scripturally based in Judaism. But it is not something that is that scripturally based in Islam and it's, it doesn't carry that much significance. For us as Muslims, the significance of Jerusalem is in the fact that we have great honor for all the prophets of Bani Israel and how they came and they were true prophets of God and how they held this city as in reverence because it was, prophet, it was given to Hazrat Ibrahim as a promised land and also how it was made a Qibla for Judaism. These are points of reverence that we have just as a generality in the same way that we would have reverence for any place of worship or Qibla of any people that exist in the world of true followers of any prophet. Then also we hold it in a degree of reverence because it is narrated in the spiritual journey, the Miraj, or in fact is the Isra of the Holy Prophet that part of it was in Jerusalem. He saw Jerusalem in that vision. Now some Muslims hold it in great reverence because of their misunderstanding of this vision. They take it as an actual physical occurrence and they think the Holy Prophet physically went to Jerusalem and supernatural things happened there with his um, you know, going to the Dome of the Rock and then flying from there into the sky and so on and so forth. So in this way, some Muslims out of their ignorance have associated an almost superstitious reverence for Jerusalem because of exaggerated interpretations of the Isra of the Prophet But otherwise, for us as Muslims, it doesn't carry that same significance and reverence. So this aspect of Qibla is something that we should also remember. That when it comes to Jerusalem, the Christians ruling, the, you know, the Jews ruling it presently under their territory, or the Christians as a symbolism wanting to move the United States embassy over there as a symbol of conquest and so on and so forth. These are things that are generally irrelevant to us as Muslims. They are relevant to the Christians and to the Jews. Their loss of the promised land was actually a strong evidence of the fact that they lost the covenant. The fact that it remained in Muslim hands for centuries after centuries, for more than a millennia, is a strong sign of the fact that the favor of Allah Ta'ala has left them. But these kind of little trivial things of where the embassy is, whether right now it is under Muslim rule or Christian rule or Israeli rule or Palestinian rule or Jewish rule, for us as Muslims, they don't carry any religious significance. So the Qibla, our Qibla is at the Kaaba. And this is something that was established in the Holy Quran and in Islam from the very beginning. After that, the holy places of the Jews are holy to us, similar to how the holy places of the, the people of any other followers of true prophets of God are holy. So after this, we go on to verse number 147 of Surah Al-Baqarah, chapter 2. Allazina kama yarifuna wa yaktumuna al-haqqa wa hum yalamun. 
Those to whom we have given the book recognize it even as they, as they recognize their sons. But surely some of them conceal the truth knowingly. In commentary of this verse, uh, the Promised Messiah salam, explained how <clears throat> the Jewish people who lived at the time of the Prophet wasallam recognized intrinsically, intuitively, the truth of the Holy Prophet wasallam. And to explain this, Hazrat Masih has given the example of how holy people recognize each other because of their spiritual insight that they have. Now, he explained how the Holy Prophet wasallam recognized the spiritual greatness of Hazrat Uwais Karni. And he saw that there was a saint that lived in um, a place that was in Arabia. I forget the place um, where it was, uh, the place it was called Yemen. Yeah, Hazrat Uwais Karni lived there. Then also Hazrat Masih Salam explains that he, the Holy Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam had an understanding of the spiritual status of his Sahaba as well. Hazrat Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam ko apne Sahaba ke maratib maloon the. Or har ek ki nuraniyat, nuraniyat e baatini ka andaza is us kulbe munabar par makshuf tha. That the status of his companions was something that was open to the pure heart of the Holy Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. So the spiritual insight is something that generally exists and that each person has to a certain degree. In fact, it even exists among disbelievers to a certain extent. Um, but this now raises a question which is off the lines of a point that we discussed before, which has to do with the fitrah, the pure nature that Allah Almighty has given us. How our pure nature is something that leads us to the truth. It is something that is a conscience that we all have that can easily recognize whether something is true or false. How the Holy Prophet said that when you are not sure about something, then seek a fatwa from your conscience because your conscience won't lie. Our conscience can tell us the details of religion, but it will tell us if murder is wrong, for example, and so on and so forth. It will tell us if something, according to the golden rule, is something we should be doing or not. But here the question arises that the verse of the Holy Quran is saying that the people who are given the book recognize the Holy Prophet as they recognize their own sons. They see his truth even though they disbelieve in him. Many of them or most of them disbelieved in him. Their hearts were lost in darkness, in disbelief, in enmity towards him, in arrogance, in contempt towards him. All these things are things that darken a person's insight, that spoil and soil a person's pure fitrat by which they can recognize the truth. So then how was it that according to this verse of the Holy Quran, they were able to recognize that truth within him? This opens up two aspects of recognition when it comes to religion and spirituality. One is something that exists in our pure nature which is completely separate from knowledge. A person does not have to be literate and well-versed. A person who is completely irrelevant but has sincerity within their hearts can have that pure insight to be able to recognize the spirituality in someone else. The one revelation of the Promised Messiah which was in Punjabi essentially communicated this. That the light, that the, that the infatuation that a person has for Allah in their heart, that is something that is apparent on their face and is recognized by other saints as well who have that same infatuation in their heart. You don't need to read any book for this. You don't need to know any specific doctrine or to be a religious scholar. So this is one way that a true prophet of God is recognized. But another way is through religious scholarship. When a person is familiar with religious literature, then it should be enough to lead them to the conclusion that this prophet of God is founded to an extent on truth. Although they can come up with whatever objections that they want to within their minds, but to an extent their expertise of the subject matter leads them to understand on a basic level from within themselves that there is truth to this person's claim, that there is validity behind it and veracity according to the history of religion. And in this way, religious knowledge is something that is important. 
Anybody who is a subject in whatever subject that they have, when someone presents the theory to them within that subject, even if they have a bias in it, they'll be able to recognize whether it has some truth in it or not. There are many subjects that have to do with science right now that are political and religiously controversial subjects. Climate change, for example, is one of them. It's something that's completely denied by many people for political reasons. There are other subjects like evolution that many, by many people are denied for religious reasons. And there are scientists who deny climate change for their political um, you know, preferences because of their political biases. And there are scientists, some scientists, who even try to deny evolution based on their religious biases. But still the fact remains that no matter how much a biased a person is, when they are an expert on a subject, in one way or the other, their knowledge leads them within themselves to understand what the truth is in a claim. Whether they reject it or agree, they can see the validity in that claim. Someone who has no religious knowledge, their dismissing of climate change and evolution is something that would be based entirely on ignorance. They would deny it completely. Something that a person who disagrees based on their scientific knowledge and bias would not do. So religious knowledge is important. Even if a person is biased and is filled with darkness in their heart, their religious knowledge leads them to understand that there is truth in the claim of the Holy Prophet ﷺ. In the same way that any subject matter expert, their knowledge benefits them in one way or the other. So these are two aspects that are described in this verse, of, in, in, these, in this verse and in the previous verses of the Holy Qur'an. One is the importance of a pure nature and fitrah to recognize the truth, and the other is the importance of religious knowledge. Now what's interesting is that a pure nature is something that can actually help a person at times who is even lost in darkness. And we find examples of this in Islam. There were people who had great religious knowledge like the Molvis of today, but that knowledge had led their hearts to become darkened because of their contempt and their opposition to a prophet of God, because of the poisonous nature that that hostility had acquired and that stubbornness of their religious dogmatic rejection of a prophet. But despite all that, we find in the history of Islam that a person's pure nature still beams from within them. You can cover up a light as much as we want to, but we cannot completely extinguish it, which exists within our human nature. Hazur explains one example of how there were Christians who came to debate with the Holy Prophet And he mentions a story that or Hazrat Ali or Hazrat Fatima anhum, ke aaye, dekh kar apne ko kaha ki mat karo. Mujko ki kasam hai ki main aise muh dekh raha hoon ki agar is pahar ko kahenge ki yahan se uth ja to fil for uth jayega. So khuda jane ki us waqt nur-e-nubuwat aur walayat kaisa jalal mein tha ki us kafir badbatin seh dil ko bhi nazar aa the Promised Messiah explains that at the time when the Holy Prophet challenged Christians to a prayer duel, Mubahila, and he came out with Hazrat Hassan and Hazrat Hussein, Hazrat Ali and Hazrat Fatima, then the Christians who saw them, one of them said to his brothers that do not enter into a Mubahila with this person because I swear by God that I see such faces that if they were to command this mountain to move from its place, then this mountain would immediately move from its place. Hazrat Masih says that, so Allah knows best what glory the Holy Prophet in his nubuwat and in his saintlihood was in at that moment. That even a kafir, even a disbeliever and a person who was foul from within himself and had his heart darkened, even he saw it. We see other examples of this as well. For example, the famous example that we know of at the Battle of Badr, 
when the disbelievers came to oppose the Muslims and the Holy Prophet These were people who had rejected the Holy Prophet and persecuted him for 14 years at this point. They had seen him among themselves, they had witnessed his signs and still they had out of contempt rejected him. This is how dark their hearts had become. But still one of those disbelievers said that I see death on the faces of these Muslims. They are ready to give everything for the sake of Islam and for the Holy Prophet so I advise you not to fight them. Many such similar examples are found that disbelievers, despite their disbelief and hostility, at times would give testimony to seeing that sincerity and that spirituality and that truth that existed among these Muslims. This pure fitrat that is given to a human being, no matter how much he tries to cover it in darkness, it still remains and it recognizes a light in another person at some point or another, in one way or another. So what is referred to in this verse of the Holy Quran is also this point, that the disbelievers who are from the people of the book, no matter how dark they had become, within the depths of their heart they recognized and still had some light by which they could see the truth of the Holy Prophet And also their subject matter expertise in the religion that they were given and in the scriptures that they were given was also something that um, led them to understand on a certain level that the scripture that this Prophet of God has come with is a fulfillment of the prophecies that we were given and also is, um, is, a, is a fulfillment of, is a true scripture according to the evidences by which Allah Ta'ala sends His, sends his signs. Uh, so now, um, if uh, we'll, we'll end with these points. Um, if anyone has any questions, you can feel free to ask. And if anyone on the live stream has any questions, they can feel free to send it in, uh, text it in, and we can address them. If we don't address it today, then we can always ask again in the next live stream. So the question is that they see the light but they reject it. So is it human nature that they don't want to reject the truth? So human nature is that we want to accept the truth. That's a part of our nature. But to understand why people reject the truth in religion, again, we just have to go back to reasons why people reject the truth when it comes to secular matters. I've given two examples of global warming and also evolution, creationism. These are things that are not too difficult to understand, especially the point on evolution versus creationism. But still people choose to reject it, even though it's a very clear truth. And there are many other examples that we see anytime any kind of a debate becomes toxic or somebody has a very biased personal uh, agenda to fulfill. Even within Islam, we should never follow or believe in Islam in a blind way that leads us to ignorance and just defending it for no reason other than the fact that we want to defeat somebody else in argument. A person's loyalty to Islam, if it leads them to go towards the direction of these creationist Christians, that's no insight at all. That's not following the wisdom of Allah Ta'ala. That's not a correct following of religion. So when we look at, for example, the political debate right now, Republicans and Democrats, liberals and conservatives have become so opposed to each other that any time a fact comes forward, whatever that fact is, the first reaction that people have is not, let me investigate what is really happening here, what's going on. It's how can I spin this to the advantage of my political view. Does it support Black Lives Matter or Blue Lives Matter? Does it support the Trump administration or does it embarrass them? Does this point go for my religious view or against my religious view? When we're so set in our thinking 
and it's reinforced by our opposition of someone else's thinking, then that's something that blinds us to the truth. Now, those facts are always there, but we either reject them after we have understood them, or from the very beginning, we look at them from a very biased perspective to want to spin them in a way that suits our agenda. And really, the reason why we do this is because it, when a, it becomes convenient at a certain point. When we are so um, invested in a certain thought or in a certain debate or a certain argument, then it becomes painful to consider the fact that we might be wrong. That's a painful thought to have. That's why we put ourselves in echo chambers. That's why so many of people who are liberal-oriented only listen to liberal news and liberal comedy shows. And those who are conservatively-oriented only listen to Fox News or conservative newspapers and so on and so forth because of the comfort factor that exists. So recognizing truth in religion means going outside of our comfort zone. That is one of the greatest qualities that a human being can have. That's what defines the difference between a believer and disbeliever. So why people do this? It's because our human nature is, is, is inclined towards truth, but our lower self is inclined towards laziness. And laziness is, is much easier to reject truth, and that's much more in line with laziness. There's a, any other questions? Okay, so the question is that when we're talking about knowledge and comparing it to nature, do we, by nature do we mean something we are born with and we have no control over? The answer is yes, nature is basically the fitrat that Allah Ta'ala has given us, the pure nature. And we don't have any control over it because it is something that is ingrained in us, it is our conscience. We can't change our nature to think that murder is actually a good thing unless we go and make an extreme concerted effort to do so. So a person is not born thinking that it's okay to murder unless that person suffers from some serious psychological problems. But people do learn it. I mean, the Nazis convinced themselves that it's okay to murder all these people, and after a while they started to believe it. They were completely comfortable with it. Any evil that a person does, they can start to become comfortable with it, where then their nature becomes silent, and they start genuinely thinking that it's okay. So nature can be deformed after a long period of behavior and deforming our thinking deliberately. But we're all born with the same nature. So that conscience is what I refer to as that pure nature that we see within ourselves. It's the one that teaches us to be honest and is averse to lying and falsehood. It is the one that teaches us to treat others as we wish to be treated. You know, so, so that's our conscience. And so when we see honesty and spirituality and conviction and truth in another person, then there's a part of the depths of our nature that recognizes it um, and cannot help but, you know, uh, and, and it has to make an extra effort to reject it. Yes, of course. So the question is that are some people more naturally inclined to truth than others? Then yes, the answer to that is yes. Allah Ta'ala has given us all varying spiritual capacities. Some people have a much higher capacity towards receiving revelation from Allah Ta'ala. That is their spiritual capacity. In the same way that physically we're born with different physical capacities. Some people are more intellectually strong. We know this in our own children. We see that some of our, one, one of our children is more intelligent than the other. We see that one of our children is born more physically strong than the other. So in the same way, we have varying spiritual capacities as well. And this happens with our conscience as well. But at the end of the day, no matter how weak or strong a person is, we have been created for a purpose. So if a person 
has a weak intellect or a strong intellect, a weak body or a strong body. These faculties have all been created for the same purposes as human beings and are used in the same way. Then a person can deform them to use them towards evil. So in the same way with our spiritual capacities, even if a person has weak spiritual capacities, we cannot say that his spiritual capacities lead him naturally towards falsehood. That's something that now falls under the category of psychological and spiritual illness, which has to be treated. And Hazrat Muslim has actually addressed this in one of his speeches. He said that in the same way that there are clinical psychological illnesses, where a person is born with something that is fundamentally wrong with their mind and goes against nature. So it is also possible for a person to have, you can call them spiritual illnesses, congenital spiritual defects. And in that case, Allah Ta'ala will judge a person according to their capacities. And la yukallifu Allahu nafsan illa wusaha, Allah does not burden a soul beyond its capacity. All right, so there's no other questions. Then we'll end here and inshallah continue um, from uh, on Saturday. On Saturday and Sunday, we don't have the live stream, but uh, we'll continue the live stream inshallah on from Monday's daris. Allahumma salli ala Muhammadin wa ala Ali Muhammad wa barik wa sallim innaka hamidun majid.